Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Well, that was fun. Sound and fury signifying the Socialist Spice Girls speaking on the House floor about... uh, Brotherly Love Spice, their sister, sister of the traveling, sisterhood of the traveling Marx Ingalls reader, uh, AOC and uh, the front girl for the Social Spice Girls, of course, uh, Barmaid Spice, and uh, MF or Spice, Rashida Tlaib, just uh, going into wonderful performative outrage over... Ilhan Omar being removed from the House Foreign Affairs Committee by Speaker McCarthy and the Republicans. Yeah, First, flailing arms and ah. Uh-huh. Oh, this is, uh, yeah, you have to see it to fully appreciate it. But I, I got to tell you, this was the worst Reverend Jeremiah Wright impersonation worst. I've ever seen. Thank you. Now, as also as a fellow New Yorker, I think one of the things that we should talk about here is also one of the disgusting legacies after 9-11 has been the targeting and racism against Muslim Americans throughout the United States of America. And this is an extension of that legacy. Consistency, there is nothing consistent with the Republican Party's continued attack except for the racism and incitement of violence against women of color in this body. I had a member of the Republican caucus threaten my life, and you all... And the Republican caucus rewarded him with one of the most prestigious committee assignments in this Congress. Don't tell me this is about consistency. Don't tell me that this is about a a condemnation of anti-Semitic remarks. When you have a member of the Republican caucus who who has talked about Jewish space lasers and an an entire amount of tropes and also elevated her to some of the highest committee assignments in this body. This is about targeting women of color in in the United States of America. Don't tell me because I didn't get a single apology when my life was threatened. Thank you. She's been to the mountaintop. Oh, my God. Uh, All right. Next up, MF or Spice. Eh, Here come the waterworks. Don't mess with the sisters. Gentlewoman's time has expired. I will not be silenced. The gentlewoman's time has expired. Omar, I am so sorry that our country is failing you today through this chamber. The gentleman is no longer recognized, and the the gentleman from Mississippi is recognized. Oh my! Uh, is it that time of the month for her? Oh my oh, goodness! Oh, that, well, how misogynistic! How well, dare oh you? my god! I mean, she's out of her. How, <laughs> how dare you? There's girl power hashtag. Right? Wasn't that the Spice Girls uh, oh, tagline? Wow. Uh, well, uh, Leader Kevin McCarthy was asked about. Uh, well, he's asked about. Hakeem Jeffries, the minority leader, having a press conference, doing sort of at room temperature what you heard from those two socialist Spice Girls do in hysterics, stereotypical hysterics, ironically enough. And um, 
Uh, McCarthy had this to say, specifically the reference to Marjorie Taylor Greene and anti-Semitic remarks. Uh, this was uh, McCarthy's response. Today. Go back here. Um, I just want to get you to uh, comment on some of the things that uh, Leader Jeffrey said. He had a press okay. conference before you. He had these posters up of some of the words that members of your conference have said in the past. So can you just respond to some Democrats who... I, was, I wasn't at the press conference, so can you tell me an example? Yeah, well, I'm just saying he... But for example, he had comments from Marjorie Taylor Greene. Up. Is she um, on foreign affairs? No, no. I was Is she on that. intel? Okay, I make my case. Hello. <laughs> um... That's awesome. Good no, it's the him. same thing with Swalwell and Schiff. Oh, uh, th- Swalwell. They were on the lines, I, too. We're not ejecting them from the House. They're not losing their offices. They're losing committee assignments because one is a pathological liar and one is a dupe that was honeypotted by a Chinese communist. And he slept with a so, Chinese spy. So they shouldn't be on committees where they have access to sensitive information that other members of Congress uh, even don't have access to. So, yeah, it sort of makes sense. That's the point. Can you you help me out here? I I don't remember Republicans acting like this when they got taken off of committees. Can you? Well, crying. Well, because it wasn't an attack on a woman of color, as AOC so eloquently described. You see, you see the difference. Nothing to do about the color of her skin or her gender. It's her anti-Semitic remarks against Israel. That's why she's not on the Foreign Affairs Committee. Oh, it's a little bit more than that. I mean, uh, she doesn't believe Israel has a right to exist. Oh, yeah, that's true, too. So So that's somewhat at odds with sort of conventional American foreign policy. I don't know if anybody's heard. Um, Yeah, and again, it it has nothing to do with her dating her brother. Okay, that's not what this is about. They broke up. (laughs) Divorced, I think, didn't they? Yeah. If you would consecrate such a union. Um, I enjoyed um, the uh, Babylon Bee's take on this. What was it? Ilan Omar blames her removal from Foreign Affairs Committee on the Jews. Because <laughs> you've heard, you've heard what she said. I mean, you, well, you've heard what she said over the years. Right. Uh, she is a detestable individual with uh, noxious beliefs. But um, her excuse during this furor about her pending removal now. Consummated removal. Oh, I, I wasn't aware of Jewish tropes and stereotypes. Yeah. Okay, so she was a poli sci major at North Dakota State. <laughs> they didn't go over that at a minor in history. She didn't know about those tropes. Well, I, I, yeah, I mean, I don't about, know what they're teaching over there, but I think that she... I, I don't think you need to go to college to know those. I, I think that you know, the, the, if you are, a, like, again, a sentient being operating in the world, then you understand uh, stereotypes that are directed at different groups for different reasons based on different, well, stereotypes, you know, to be redundant. But it's pretty straightforward. I mean, it's, <laughs> I mean it, for 10 years, she didn't know about uh, all of these tropes and uh, stereotypes about Jewish people, so that's why she just inadvertently fell into making them. But she has very defined positions on the state of Israel. Doesn't know much about the Jewish people, but very defined positions on the state of Israel, like it's a uh, rogue state that shouldn't exist because it was taken from the Palestinians. I mean, that's effectively her position. And and you want to hear from her? her? I mean, she tried to cry yesterday. I I watched it. Squeeze a tear for us. Indians... Do we get to have, do we have to have to be counted as Americans? This is what this debate is about, Madam Speaker. 
There is this idea that you are a suspect if you are an immigrant oh, yeah, right. or if right. you are from certain parts oh, of the world okay, or a certain enough. skin tone. And then she tried to tie to cry, but not like Talib. That Talib, that is classic. I want to oh, hear that again. Like a, like a shrieking, like a, like a temper tantrum. Well, only as MF or Spice would do. I mean, that's, you know, everybody in the Socialist Spice band has their own sort of persona. And they are all living down to those personas. I, I'm, I'm so sorry. I, it's 19 seconds. I've got to hear it again. Gentlewoman's time has expired. Omar will not be silenced. The gentlewoman's time has expired. To Omar, the gentlewoman's so time sorry, has expired. That our country is failing you today through this chamber. You belong The, the gentlewoman is no longer recognized, and the, the gentleman from Mississippi is recognized. Uh, the uh, residents of the Bronx, wow. of uh, Dearborn, Michigan, of uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul, you must be so proud of these three ladies. <sighs> Pat in Lockport, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Good morning. Isn't it absolutely astounding that any level of accountability afforded to the leftists causes them to go into panic attacks? These screaming memes should have been physically removed. And if that's the type of people that we have in our government, no wonder the hell we're in the situation that we're in. They're all freaking nuts. Pat. Tom, Blue Island. Hey, Dan and Amy, uh, we have entered Black History Month, and Martin Luther King's dream has been realized. Uh, These women are not being judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Have a good Friday. Thanks, Tom. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. The stories you need to know to start your day. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560. Business owners, now's the time for your business to make the move to a locally owned business bank. Hi, Mike Gallagher here to let you know that you don't have to look far. Signature Bank was founded in Chicago with a simple mission to help companies like yours grow, succeed, and thrive. Their decisions are made locally by a terrific team that knows your name, cares about your business, and invests in your success. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. I'm a customer. As business owners, they knew that local family-owned businesses were not getting the help they needed or deserved. So, I invite you to reach out to my friends at Signature Bank today. Write the number down. Remember this phone number, Signature Bank, 773-467-5630. And learn all about this great bank, 773-467-5630. Or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. stories only the biggest guests and only the biggest opinions this is am 560 the answer top of the morning dan and amy don't worry about that uh chai spy balloon over montana just shoot it down apparently people in a passenger commercial plane saw it flying it, to, yeah. don't worry about it governor john dutton is going to wrangle oh. that thing out of the air and he's going to take it to the train station <laughs> right across the border don't you worry about a thing. Don't. Not we're not Royal. talking about the train station. Oh, that's right. We you can't don't talk, talk about, about the train station. All right. Oh, I'm so glad. Are you watching the other one? Uh, 1823. What? 1912. Uh, I haven't it? watched the prequels. No. Oh, they're. Oh, you have. Can you I heard the one that? with uh, Harrison Ford is not so good, but the one with uh, oh. Tim McGraw and Faith Hill was good. It, they're, they're both excellent. Mm. One is not better than the other. 
Mm. And Helen Mirren, I mean, Mirren, oh, she's so good. It, you've got to see it. Hmm. If you like Yellowstone, you promise me, you'll, you'll, I think they're better than Yellowstone. Yellowstone's, uh, I liked it somewhat, but it's a bit jump the shark for me now. Right, it's, that's why you got to, like, watch little, the prequels. Yeah, it's the soap opera's getting a little, you know, bordering on the silly. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know. It's he'll all, take care of the problem. He'll take. He'll yeah. shoot down the balloon. Yeah, and then um, and Canada's on it too. They might have some balloons in Canada too. Yeah. Uh, what? Ha- oh, so uh, that uh, as Mike Scott was reporting, um, Fred La Mormet, uh Fred the Rodent in Canada, oh, yeah. dead, which I guess means <laughs> six more years of Trudeau. What does that mean? <laughs> I think he died of COVID. Oh, too soon. I'm sorry. Myocarditis. He could have. Yeah. But remember, de Blasio dropped a one on his head. He died. Then I mean, he killed a... Not de Blasio. The, no. Yeah, right. But I'm just saying 10 years ago when we had a groundhog mishap there, too. All right. Sean Caston. <laughs> it's, you know, he, he's laughable. I, he doesn't even really bother me. He's, I, he's obviously just a abhorrent individual. He's got a potty mouth. He's sophomoric, but not funny. I mean, he's just immature. He's a child. Throws temper tantrums, and uh, uh, he know, bullies attempts, people too. Well, he attempts he attempts that yeah to, right, to be this tough guy act, this rough and tumble guy. He's a big pee hat, is what he is. But the other the thing that's the most uh, humorous to me about it, wow. for all those educated people who think they're educated, who live in the leafy suburbs that send Sean Caston back to Congress again in November. You're dopes. He, you're dopes. No, they're idiots. He's, he's a goof, and you're a goof. You're not educated. You're ignoramuses. That's what's funny about it. I mean, you could say the same thing about the North Shore. Oh, we're so uh, hyper-educated. We're so intelligent and profession. We're a professional class. We've got the, all these great skill sets. No, you don't. You may be able to make some money. Big deal. You think you're enlightened? You think you're a civic-minded individual? You're a patriot? No, you're not. You don't know anything. You're a goof, at least when it comes to public policy, when it comes to a free society. You know nothing about these things. And let me provide additional evidence, as if it's not already overwhelming when it comes to Sean Caston. Here's Sean, legislation Sean Caston has introduced. Oh, boy. Do you uh, just simple question um, before we even get to the particulars? All of you enlightened uh, the, the the lawyers in Sean Caston's district, Illinois six. Give us a call. Do you believe in judicial review? Do you believe in the holding in Marvers Madison, the precedent that was set there? Do you support that? Do you think that's good constitutional law? That that makes sense, consistent with the judiciary's mission to interpret the law. Simple question. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro, answer line. 64636DA, turnkey.pro, text line. And I ask because Sean Caston doesn't. Sean Caston wants to overturn Marbury, Marbury versus Madison in one fell swoop with his new legislation. Of course, the uh, you know, animal farm-like uh, title. A common sense vision for American democracy. You know. Uh, and what it really boils down to is more politicians and fewer con- constitutional restraints on the executive. 
established 12 at-large senators to be elected through a nationwide system of ranked choice voting, number one. At approximately 138 members of the House, 138, you know, it's the 435 plus 138. Why is he doing that? See if you can think through that. Why would you think he proposed something like that? Change the jurisdiction of the Supreme Court and create a 13-judge multi-circuit panel to hear cases where the United States or a federal agency is a party to the case. The Supreme Court is out of the business of interpreting the Constitution. Uh-huh. Um, this has um, been suggested before, and... Uh, as Mark Lennon writes about it over at Wirepoints, it was called uh, destabilizing by Harvard Law Professor Lawrence Tribe. The person who previously proposed it was manifestly unqualified, quote-unquote, wrote a, a law professor in the L.A. Times, an op-ed. Uh, Washington Post column, the person who previously proposed this is a crackpot. This is lunacy for any lawyer, certainly one now at the helm of the Justice Department at the time, to disagree with Marbury is like a physicist announcing the laws of gravity. That was when former acting Attorney General Matthew Whitaker made an unfortunate statement suggesting that uh, Marbury v. Madison was wrongly decided. So for all of those leftists who decried Matthew Whitaker, what do you have to say about Sean Caston, one of your fellow travelers? Or he aspires to be. He's not smart enough to you know, hang with the Larry Tribes of the world, but um, he aspires to be. He's trying to carry water for the left. Is he a crackpot? Well, he is a crackpot, Yeah, actually. do you think he came up with this idea or somebody talked him into it? Not that no, that matters, but I, no, I mean, he, he he's a crackpot. Thing. <laughs> Hunter, uh, you, you, and, and the other pieces of this, you understand what he's trying to do to upend the original intent of other sections of the Constitution, like the equal representation in the Senate, to so big states couldn't disadvantage small states, thus the 12 at-large senators. To tip the scales in favor of the big states, thus the 138 more congressional districts um, make the districts smaller so they can be more responsive to the constituents wrong. Pack more congressmen into populated blue states that are hemorrhaging population. Uh. But they're still big. I mean, California still has, you know, upwards of 40 million people. New York has upwards of what 25 million Illinois is upwards of 12, 12 and a half. So there's, there's still a lot of votes, but there could be more if you, especially if they're, when they're, you have the sort of, sort of exodus that you're having, if you just sliced and diced them, those districts up, you know, make it 12, make it, uh, uh, what do we have left? 17? Make it 34 instead of 17 in Illinois. Right? More oh, yeah. politicians. We need more politicians. Uh, also, just going back to... His uh, defenestration of the Supreme Court's authority when it comes to 
determining whether a law is constitutional or not. No law could be declared unconstitutional without concurrence of 70% of the judges on his 13-member panel, which would all but eliminate meaningful judicial review. You're talking a supermajority of appellate court judges would have to agree about a matter of constitutionality. This is a way to expand the power of the legislative and the executive branches to do as they please and diminish the judiciary. Now, I understand the arguments about oh, legislating from the bench and so on and so forth, but uh, you really want to go away from the idea, at least in principle, of the branches of government being a check on each other? Was that genius or were the founders misguided and we were just waiting for Sean Caston to show up on the scene to set things right? I mean, I'd love to hear from anybody in his district. I know I'm not going to hear from the left because they're dummies like Sean Caston who pretend that they are engaged, informed, thoughtful. They're not. And that's the problem, of course. You can't get to them because their heads are up their own behinds. But they prance around like they're the vanguard. Ignoramuses. Producing ignorant representation. Well, that's what ignoramuses do, is make make poor choices because they're so poorly informed. They're so thoughtless. They're so lacking in intellectual curiosity. This legislation from Sean Kasson is a joke. It's a joke. Well, it's not going to go anywhere, do you think? No, it's not going anywhere, but that's not the point. It's emblematic of the kind of person he is, the kind of buffoonery that he exhibits, and what he comes up with with a couple of marbles rolling around between his ears. And nobody will say anything because they know what I'm saying is true. So when you know that one of your own is a doofus and you're on the left, you don't say anything. That's the, that's the indictment. That's as far as they'll go. Because, of course, they have to cover their own backsides, you know, where their heads reside. We didn't do anything wrong. They have to justify their decisions. You have to rationalize your conduct. And nobody... No group of people rationalizes their conduct or will go to greater lengths to rationalize their conduct than the Illinois electorate in Chicagoland. 312-642-5600 is our turnkey.pro answer line. You could also text us all morning long at 64636. Type in DA, then a quick comment. Uh, Glennon also points out, you know, um, Sean Caston is an on-again, off-again fan of Judicial Review. For example, he applauded the Supreme Court's decision striking down parts of uh, Donald Trump's uh, temporary travel ban on um, persons from uh, certain uh, Muslim-majority countries, Mm -hmm. for example. Sometimes he likes it, sometimes he doesn't. But what he really wants to do is change the balance of power so he doesn't have to, you know, be on the sidelines waiting for those decisions add more members to his gang in the legislative branch, reside more power in the executive, at least as long as there's an executive he likes. 
tip the scales in favor of bigger blue states so that you can be a check on the executive and the Congress could do end runs around an executive he didn't like. And there would be, you know, effectively no judiciary to stop them. Mike in Plano, you're on Chicago's, uh, Chicago's Morning Answer. Hey, guys. You know, my dad, uh, he delivers bottled water in the western suburbs. He has for 30 years. He always talks about, you know, the great relationships he has with his customers, how nice the people are. And there's no doubt about that. But uh, I, with the way the people in that area have been voting the last uh, few election cycles, I just can't share those same thoughts as he does. I mean, these people voted for Sean Cash and who uh, ran in 2018 and replaced Peter Roscom, who's a do-nothing neocon. But, um so Sean Cashin ran 2018 as a uh, guy who said he was going to be a, quote, independent check on the Trump administration, which is impossible when you're running in the opposition party. You can't be independent. And then another thing he did uh, in 2020 during COVID was uh, he commented on a uh, rally that Don Jr. had down in Florida where uh, a bunch of people were packed into a room. And uh, he referred to those people who are mostly white as uh, – he called, first of all, he uh, used those to call all white people as um, scientifically illiterate, uneducated peasants. Now, that's what Sean Cassin said. Now, first of all, he's white, so he better be referring to himself. But um, I brought this up to some of his supporters, and they actually defend it. They say, oh, well, he was actually making this specific statement. So I go, well, what if Don Jr. said that about white people or, God forbid, any other group? What would your response be then? Just shows that such ignoramuses that these uh, suburban voters are. Thanks for the comment. And he's lippy, man. The fact that we had the DuPage County Sheriff on and said that he called him and bullied him and threatened him. I mean, come on, he's such a, no, he's take it outside. Bully, he's not bullying Jim Mendrick. Okay, well, Jim, Jim Mendrick, Jim, Jim, this, isn't, this isn't a playground. Well, he called he's, him and harassed he is, him. He, yes. He, he, didn't, he didn't harass him. He just threw a temper tantrum. He's a child. He's a child. He's a simpleton. And so are people who support him. How could your, anybody your vote for him? I mean, just look at him. I, I just, ugh, makes me no, sick. No, don't, no, don't look at him. Listen to him. Listen to neither what he, I don't want to deal with. Listen to what he actually says when he complains about his salary as a congressman being insufficient, when he says uh, people who uh, own, guns. own guns have little penises. I assume he means the women, too. Um, you know that he's he's a simpleton, he's a joke, and you're a joke. Those who support him, would and love Donner's for Grove, somebody to call him it. Call the him professionals, it. the soccer moms, the pee hat dads. You're a joke, Frank and Arlington Heights. Good morning. I guess we can now call <clears throat> Sean Caston a reactionary. Because he really, by weakening the judicial branch so much at the federal level, wants to really go back, I guess, to uh, the way it was under the Articles of Confederation from 1781 to 1789. They had no federal judicial branch at all. All they had was the state courts. That's what he wants to do. He hasn't heard of the Baron de Montesquieu, the French Enlightenment philosopher who uh, was the one who said the best form of government is the one that has three branches and that has adequate checks and balances between yes. those three branches. Yeah. You know, I always tell my kids, we live in 
a time in history where we're basically the top 0.1% of all the people who ever lived in terms of our standard of living, and how they should have, how they should appreciate that. And, and why is that? That's because we live in a system that encourages entrepreneurship and a system of capitalism that is backed up and has been over the course of our history by our government that is limited, and it's limited because of these three branches. Evidently, Sean Kasson needs to take, take a basic course in civics and economics. Well, uh, Frank, I'd, I'd get him a copy of The Spirit of the Law, but somebody would have to read it to him while he eats dirt, you know? It's just there's just no capacity sure. there. Thanks for the call, Frank. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. You've made the switch, and it feels so good. You switch to Chicago's Morning Answer on AM five sixty. The answer. Hey, business owners, is your business and money in good hands? Does your bank invest in your success? Hi, Mike Gallagher here, letting you know that when you need a relationship bank, Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. I love these guys. Not only do they have expansive industry experience, a strong financial track record, but they're also highly capitalized for strategic growth. That's so important. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. They know what it means to grow a business by designing solutions that are right for you and only you. These are real people. They're ready to help. So reach out to my friends at Signature Bank. Make the call today, 773-467-5630, 773-467-5630, or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Your business could be Signature Bank's next success story. Go online, SignatureBank.Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender, Signature Bank. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Uh, last week, we brought you Project Veritas's investigative work. This uh, undercover reporter that uh, befriended a uh, doctor at Pfizer, whose like direct report is a direct report to the CEO of Pfizer, Albert Borla. He uh, uh, medical. He's got a, a medical degree, as we understand it, from his LinkedIn page, which Project Veritas identified. And he's basically like the R&D head for their mRNA section. He talked in the initial videos about how Pfizer was trying to, thinking about doing, not exactly clear, what he called directed evolution of the virus so that you can stay one step ahead of the mutations. Direct, some people would call that gain of function. Don't use that phrase. So that you can be prepared to, well, keep making billions off vaccines for the so-called vaccines for the mutations of the disease. Keep the money coming in. And then he was uh, ambushed by James O'Keefe, and he had a fit and had hysterics and so on and so and forth. Grabbed That's his where... iPad and grabbed the cameraman's camera, and they got. Fell to the ground. That's where we left, that we, we last left Dr. Jordan Tristan Walker. But apparently there was another date night. Oh, there was? Because Project Veritas released another video with 
Dr. Jordan Tristan Walker's comments about his work at Pfizer. And this time it was on adverse outcomes. Uh, and specifically, he talked about the Vax's impact on women's menstrual cycles. Now, I know in this day and age, man can man men can menstruate, but Men's, uh, yeah. let's just let's just keep it with uh, women. That's what we do here. We focus on X, Y, and XX. So listen to what he has to say about the concerns he has of the vaccine's impact on women. And also, since there was some suggestion that this was a hoax or that this guy was just a contractor, he's he's, a, he's sort of a, a administrative functionary. He's not he doesn't have the knowledge base to talk intelligently about what Pfizer may or may not be doing. Listen to his commentary here. And uh, that question answers itself or that allegation is okay. responded to. Something irregular about their menstrual cycles, so people have to investigate that down the line. Yeah. Well, because that is a little concerning. Because, like, if you think about the science, like, it shouldn't be interacting with, like, you know, the, uh, it's called, like, the hypo, uh, hypothalamus, anterior gonadal axis. Right. Like, you know, the hormones are like their menstrual cycles and things like that. And it actually shouldn't be interfering with that, so we don't really It, it shouldn't? It shouldn't, like, no. But is it? There's something happening, but we don't know what's for real. Well, I mean, you're a urologist, so you must understand, like, what's going on with it, right? Like, well, that's why I understand that it's weird. I mean, I've, I've heard that, you know, like, mm -hmm. just mental cycles and... I don't know what's going on there. Yeah. And we don't discover something really bad. Not one. I hope we don't find out that, like, there's somehow this mRNA, like, lingers in the body, and then it, like, has... Because it has to be impacting something hormonal stuff. They impact menstrual cycles. Right. So somehow the vaccines must be interacting with like the axis signal, the HPG axis, to cause these changes in menstrual cycles. Like think about how these this uh, the axis, HPG axis. Yeah, it goes like the uh, hypothalamus, pituitary, and then gonadotropin signal. Like, signal, signal okay. Yeah. So the HPG axis is why the fertility problems are happening. Yeah, because they control the cycles. So like if anything is impacting that, it must be impacting these hormones. Okay. But then we can figure out like how are they finding hormones? Because like I will, I mean, I will say like if it does come down down the line or something wrong with that thing, and obviously people will like criticize like the big push. Is there a lot of social pressure, government pressure, job pressure? See if that thing like I have to be rushing all eyes over the gun fired, right? Right. And if something were to happen downstream and it was like really bad, I think it would. I mean, the scale of that scandal would be like enormous. Something were to happen downstream that was bad, the scale of that would be enormous. Yeah, you don't yeah, say. It's coming. You don't say. Well, I hope it's not coming. I don't know if it's coming. But I know that the guy on the inside, with the knowledge that he has, is concerned about it. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. 64636DA, turnkey.pro text line. He's not the only one. Uh, Alex Berenson, writing over at his Substack on Reported Truths, got a uh, note from a person inside the CDC. Really? And he, and he writes, I confirm this person's identity, that this person works for the CDC. I've written to you before. I work at CDC. Initially, people were very pro-vaccine, rushing to get boosters when they were first available, clamoring for the approval so they could jab their kids, etc., now some confide to me that they don't want more boosters and the body count is getting noticeable. People in their 40s to 60s mostly, representative of the workplace. 
But I don't think they'll ever admit they're wrong. There's no face-saving way I can think of to back down and admit the truth. Wow. Hmm. And again, um, not overstating the case because there's no need to. Raising questions and, frankly, leaning on people on the inside who are expressing concerns in a uh, private moment, what, what uh, Dr. Walker there thought was a private moment, where he's unguarded and tells you what he really thinks, as opposed to the spin you get from Pfizer CEO Albert Borla and, of course, the CDC and the rest of the COVIDian class. Did you see, by the way, what Project Veritas did? They rented an LED truck and they parked it outside of Pfizer World Headquarters in Manhattan and just kept playing um, that video over and over again. It's a huge semi-truck. As many uh, as as uh, many of Project Veritas's videos have gone viral, I understand this is the most viewed. This series is the most viewed video ever in Project Veritas history. Good for them. And I got to tell you, I mean, and I've told you this story before, and it's kind of gross, but after I got my first shot, and I I went through menopause ten years ago, I had a full blown period, and Alex Berenson, I talked to, he called me, we talked about it, and I said. I called my gynecologist and I said, what is going on? He said, I, I can't disclose other people's information, but you're not the first phone call I've gotten on this. You know, there's an interesting piece on this whole, um, you know, kind of died suddenly discussion. Oh, and essentially, essentially the, well, not not the movie, just the discussion. Oh, okay. Not, not, not particularly that documentary, which has got problems. But it does. I, I don't want to go down that road. The, the, the. Because what he's talking about, Jordan Walker, you know, the concerns, I mean, these were concerns expressed, but they were muted, you know, from the start. Right. There's a good uh, interview uh, with uh, Vinay Prasad, who we've mentioned before. He's a hematologist and oncologist at the University of California, San Francisco, and um, a uh, cardiologist. Uh, they, they do this sort of Q&A on the issue of adverse outcomes. Um, uh, John Mandrola is his name. Uh, but one of the things they say, when it's the first question, what are the side effects of the vaccine? Simple, neutral. Uh, they say in their collective response, doctors Mandrola and Prasad, shortly after the release of the vaccines, those developed by J&J and AstraZeneca, which, of course, use different technology than Pfizer and Moderna, were linked to a clotting condition that caused fatal strokes in a small number of women of childbearing age. Mm -hmm. The condition is so dire that its clear link to the vaccines was discovered relatively quickly, despite occurring at extremely low rates. We both argued early on that the J&J shot should be severely limited, if not outright banned, for women under the age of 55. This was for the simple reason that a safer alternative, the mRNA vaccines, existed for that, this age group, and that the clotting side effect was absolutely catastrophic. Now, that's just one piece of the discussion, but we talked about that at the time. Oh, yeah. But, but I mean, that, was, that is something I would submit was not widely known, was not widely discussed, was not widely covered. And this is the problem from COVID at the beginning to present. It was like an ad campaign. It was just remember the jingle don't ask questions. Don't suggest that there could be um, a, you know, different decisions made for different people who are differently situated. No, no, no. It's one size fits all. 
run in the direction of the jingle. But it's so much more complicated than that. They go on. Indeed, for very young women or for women who had recovered from a COVID-19 infection, we thought that skipping the vaccine entirely was preferable to getting the J&J. The safety signal for the shot was noted in April of 2021, but it wasn't until the following December, so eight months, that the FDA took the soft action of deprioritizing the vaccine when it should have gone further and removed it. But we're supposed to accept the edicts from these public health agencies without question. Uh, they go on to talk about the mRNAs that most people got. Uh, the rare but serious side effect from these shots that generates most of the public concern, the side effect, myocarditis, nearly all of the accusations of died suddenly imply injury from vaccine-induced myocarditis. It is not a trivial condition. Hospitalization is often required. And after release, restrictions are put on patients regarding athletic activity and exertion. Now, they go on to say that the risk is uh, relatively low. But again, nobody ever claimed that it was you know, a, a fait accompli. You're going to get myocarditis if you take the vaccine. It's always the question of for a specific individual, not for society as a whole, for me, for you, for your kids, for your dad, for your mom. What is the comparative risk? Does it make more sense to get the vaccine for me? Or does it make more sense not to? Which is the greater risk? Getting COVID or getting myocarditis is the, essentially a simple question. And But that's a question you couldn't ask. If you ask no. that question, then you're anti-vax, exactly. you're vax denier, you're a chicken little, you're a conspiracy theorist you're a threat to democracy you're an insurrectionist right and you're racist and you back trump yeah well right the, all of it right um that so these two doctors some experts cited studies that show the risk was very low in the range of one in a hundred thousand vaccinated people um such estimates were true but they hit a critical they hid a critical nuance Post-vaccine myocarditis occurs at much higher frequencies. Estimates are up to 30 times higher in healthy young males, which we also talked about. But was that amplified? Was that nuance discussed and reported upon, poured over, infused into every conversation about whether or not uh, this specific cohort of Americans should get the vax? No. And all of us moms in Illinois and across the country got our kids vaccinated. The difference in incidence of myocarditis for this population, healthy young males, is crucial, the doctors say, especially given that young people have the lowest risk for serious complications from the virus itself. The risk of developing myocarditis, myocarditis rises after the second dose of the vaccine, and Moderna is implicated more often than Pfizer. As a result, as we know, some European and Scandinavian countries have limited the use of Moderna in people under the age of 30, with, of course, the Danish Health Authority right, recommending boosters only for people over the age of 50 or under the age of 50 of specific medical conditions. And aren't they not allowing, I mean, unless you have a severe comorbidity, kids under, or you know, people under, under 50 and under 18? No, you can't do Yeah, it. under 18, right. Well, what do they know right. that we don't know? Or are we just ignoring this? Well, yeah, I mean, essentially you have some public health authorities around the world that uh, are actually listening uh, to what uh, medical professionals say 
supported by the evidence. Oh, the evidence. All the data and science acolytes that eschew data and science that doesn't comport with their beliefs. Speaking of which, another one, just piling on here, let's do a COVID dump. A uh, massive international research collaboration that analyzed several dozen rigorous studies, so sort of a meta-analysis, focusing on physical interventions against COVID and flu, found that masks and hand-washing yes. provide little to no protection against infection or illness rates. This is a peer-reviewed study by Cochrane Database of Success of Systematic Reviews. Uh, here's what they did. Uh, the, uh, they included the work of researchers at institutions in Britain, Canada, Australia, Italy, and Saudi Arabia. A total of 78 studies were analyzed. Most recent additions to the meta-analysis were 11 new randomized controlled trials. And the upshot... Well, I'll just quote one of the uh, one of the study's authors, Carl Hennigan, who directs the Center for Evidence-Based Medicine at the University of Oxford. Probably a Trump supporter, right? Wearing masks, I'm quoting him, wearing masks in the community probably makes little or no difference to the outcome of influenza-like illness, COVID-19-like illness, compared to not wearing masks. Little or no difference. Little or no difference. We still live in a clown world. I mean, walk down a Chicago street. Everyone's wearing masks again. They're in their car alone wearing masks. <sighs> Chris and Barrington, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Morning, Dan and Amy. Happy Friday. Uh, Thank you. First, uh, let's just uh, push the reset button. Let's remember this was some virus that we had no idea coming from China. And we had no idea about it. And then all of a sudden we get these vaccines that we have no idea about. They've been rushed through. They're experimental. But yet you still had people lining up to take them. Even like teachers cutting in line just to get it. They all had a choice. You know, you needed to use a little bit of common sense and, and not just jump into this and believe what the government and big pharma are telling you. Remember going to the grocery store and they just played over that loop about standing, staying six feet away and, and then they had the one-way aisles. It was all brainwashed and, 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 and you know, a lot of the weak, weak COVID idiots uh, fell for it. So they get what they get. Happy Friday. Thanks for the call, Chris. Um, I mean, uh, some positive news here we should uh, mention as well. Not that this isn't positive news. That meta-analysis is positive news. The What you're hearing from that uh, person who emailed Alex Berenson is positive news. The intelligent discussion from doctors like Vinay Prasad and that uh, cardiologist uh, that's good news that you have thoughtful people that are explaining things based on their expertise and analyzing the evidence. Also good news, Dr. Peter McCullough, who is one of those you know, respected public health professionals at Baylor, um, who became a crank when he dared to veer from COVID orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. Uh, on Wednesday this week, uh, a Texas judge dismissed a lawsuit filed against him two years ago by his former employer, Baylor Scott and White Health System. The uh, suit alleged that he had violated his separation agreement by 
well, daring to offer his views on the response to COVID. And he dismissed the suit with prejudice, meaning no leave to refile. Uh, McCullough saying it's a strong victory for freedom of speech and fair, balanced publication and media presentation of clinical data as it has emerged over the course of the pandemic crisis. My analyses and conclusions have been accurate, consistent, and have always been my own, not those of any institution. They, they were suing him for you know, reputational harm he did because he became a lightning rod, uh, somebody that was targeted by the COVIDians because, again, he dared to speak out like Jay Bhattacharya at Stanford, like our Martin Kaldorf at Harvard, like Sunetra Gupta at Oxford, and so forth. Yeah. So that's positive. We got that going for us. Well, yeah. keep swinging. Yeah, I mean, if, if anything should encourage you, it's the fact that you have people that are willing to put their professional reputations and careers on the line to tell the truth. And that is encouraging. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. Connect with Dan and Amy using the AM560 mobile app. Download it today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. Only the biggest stories, only the biggest guests, and only the biggest opinions. This is AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Don't miss the McHenry County Lincoln Leadership Dinner. That's coming up a week from Saturday, Saturday, February 11th at the Crystal Lake Holiday Inn. Are you going to be the keynote speaker? I am. I was just getting oh. to that. Oh, but, oh excuse but the, me. I didn't mean the that. headline, I'm not the headliner, the headline, silent auction and Second Amendment raffle. Oh. That's the headliner. And then also I will be delivering the keynote address. Oh. Mm, yeah. Will we be seeing you in studio soon then? Yeah. Just let excited. me know because I'll get all dolled up for you. Yeah. Excited <laughs> so we'll Quinn. Uh, so come out and enjoy a fantastic evening with like-minded individuals in McHenry County. Uh, tickets are on sale now, available at 560theanswer.com slash Lincoln. 560theanswer.com slash Lincoln. You can come out, uh, cheer me, boo me, either way, doesn't matter. And again, the date is? I'm going to write it down. A week from Saturday, February 11th, the Super Bowl Eve. Oh, yeah. There you go. You can look, think about it that way. All right. So okay. everybody come out to uh, the Holiday Inn in Crystal Lake on uh, on Saturday, February 11th. Again, 560theanswer.com slash Lincoln to get tickets and support the McHenry Republican Party, perhaps the last conservative outpost in the Collar Counties. Uh, all right. The case of Douglas Mackey. The FBI has done it again. They're on the job again. Now, this arrest is a couple of years old, but now it's come to trial. Fresh off of their uh, efforts to stop pushing outside of an abortion mill in Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, to be specific, the Marco case, which, of course, was he, the, the they lost. Absurd case. Well, here's another one that is, in my mind, in the mind of legal scholars like our friend Andy McCarthy, former chief prosecutor in Manhattan, knows something about this. It's the case of Douglas Mackey, a.k.a. Ricky Vaughn. He was arrested two years ago, charged by the Eastern District of New York, with, and I'm quoting from their press release at the time, the defendant exploited a social media platform to infringe on one of the most basic and sacred rights guaranteed by the Constitution, the right to vote. The complaint underscores the department's commitment to investigating prosecutors, 
prosecuting those who would undermine citizens' voting rights. Well, that's what the FBI is known for, isn't it? There's no place in public discourse for lies and misinformation to defraud citizens of their right to vote. This is where we get to it. Hmm. Protecting every American citizen's right to cast a legitimate vote is the key to the success of our republic and other, you know, high-minded rhetorical flourishes. So what do you do, you wonder? Yeah, good. Good to wonder. Uh in the final two months of the 2016 campaign, he disseminated nonsense, essentially, on social media. Well, a lot of people do that. <laughs> you don't say. <laughs> but uh, it, Are we the, talking the, like memes? Or but the FBI labeled this a disinformation campaign. Oh, boy. Uh, he um, collaborated with uh, like-minded pranksters to do things like a week before the election, he urged in a tweet that voters should, quote, avoid the line, vote from home, text Hillary to 59925, <laughs> vote for Hillary and be part of history. That's what he did. Yeah, that's a prank. Okay. Yeah. That's kind of funny. Uh, no, it's not. That's depriving Americans of their right to vote. Oh, yeah. If people believe that, they're stupid. But all right. These... These scams, uh, this telephone scam thing, text scam thing he was doing, the FBI reports as many as 4,900 people may have followed Mackey's texting instructions oh based on the unique telephone numbers that texted, I guess. 8675309 was taken. And they got Jenny. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, Andy McCarthy writing at the time, the government's complaint makes no effort to sort out how many of those 4,900 people texted as a lark how many were eligible to vote, or how many did not vote, much less did not vote because of Mackey's tweets. Also on mention is the common knowledge that there is no legal process to vote by text message. Not that the Democrats wouldn't pursue that if they could. McCarthy was on with uh, Tucker Carlson the other night to uh, update his commentary on this prosecution. Well, I'd like to just say it's a ridiculous case, Tucker, but actually turns out to be a dangerous one in the end. I mean, basically, you have a yeah. guy who's putting out memes with some misinformation in it. They'd like to be able to charge him with fraud, but they can't because it's not a federal fraud. So what they've done is trivialize something that's a very serious problem, which is voters who get threatened with physical harm to prevent them right. from voting. And yes. obviously, that doesn't apply to this situation at all. So it's really like a toe in the water for the FBI uh, in the end to manage communications in election campaigns. And, you know, I think we've seen the last few years how well the FBI's involvement in our elections and our politics has worked out. You know, I, I, I think, Tucker, that it's part of what you're going to see. It's a general theme that's running through uh, all of the things that the Biden administration is doing. I think you're going to see a lot of it from their Justice Department. These are progressive narratives basically what they want you to believe is they're you know trump twitter trolls and white supremacists who are out there um you know undermining american life at every turn and corrupting our election process and this is just another piece of it you know it's a very short step from saying the fbi should monitor information about how you can vote to what you can say in an election campaign and again i, I just think the government monitoring this stuff Ought to alarm everyone. 
312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line, 64636-DA, turnkey.pro text line. Are you alarmed? Scary stuff. I mean, I, I mean, and I keep thinking, too, if she, he was doing that with Trump, they would have even touched him. They would have just let this go. If he was saying, well, text this number to vote for Trump, you know. Right. I mean, right. That's, that's the answer. Yeah. Issue, but, but, but also, but, but also the, the road that we're on where Andy McCarthy is talking about. So the government defines disinformation that rises to the level of criminality. He wrote at the time, did McCarthy, that this prosecution is a threefer. The prosecutorial creation of a crime Congress has not prescribed. The trivialization of civil rights law and the intrusion of government as a monitor of political speech. So what if, uh, if, if I post a Trump is Hitler meme and uh, attach it to some sort of text or, or vote online kind of campaign, then am I, am I disenfranchising Trump voters? Oh, my gosh, I was going to vote for Trump, but I didn't know he was Hitler. I mean, that's part of the point he makes, which is sort of common knowledge or should be a de facto threshold test that uh, those who are serious enough about their franchise to exercise it know that you can't text your vote in and have it count. But no, we have to suspend disbelief so the FBI can continue its to wage its war against what they define right. as disinformation. And, of course, that would never be arbitrary and capricious. As you point out, that would never be driven by the particular political target. No. No, of course not. That's what the FBI is busy doing when they're not waiting for Biden lawyers to bring classified documents out of his houses. They're... Uh, raiding Mark Hoke's home in rural Pennsylvania because he pushed a guy off of off of his son who kept harassing him in front of a as he's praying in front of an abortion clinic, something even Planned Parenthood acknowledged about this escort, as we talked about uh, earlier in the week. And they're uh, expending resources to prosecute the likes of some Twitter troll because he had a big and, and because he had a big following. That's really why. And because they claim 4,900 Democrats voted by phone and part of this scheme. Right. And as uh, laid out with Andy McCarthy commented at the time, there's no effort to actually provide any meat to that bone, regardless of whether they did. You're going to every lie that's told about every candidate going in every direction is a prosecutable offense because it's disinformation. If it's purposely inaccurate. Well, which, I mean, uh, which a lot of political discourse is, then what I got to I got to look over my shoulder to see if the FBI is going to be knocking on my door or knocking on my door. That'd be too polite, depending on my political persuasion. If it was my door, if they're sending SEAL Team six out after me. I mean, got amphibious mind, vehicles in my right. front lawn because I said, you know, something that was inaccurate about uh, some candidate. I mean, it's scary times, but think we had 51 intel chiefs who said that Hunter Biden's laptop was disinformation. Russian yes. hoax. Even right. Hunter himself could be Russian. That hacked oh. into my computer. I mean, these are the same people. They're on the same team. And now I want to take Republicans down. And we're supposed to take them seriously. Right. Because there's no trust there. And I don't know how they're ever going to get the American people's trust back. 
There's nothing are... they could do to ever do that. I mean, they let Larry Nasser. They they interviewed him. They knew he was raping gymnasts, and they didn't do anything. And twenty seven more girls were victimized. They don't care. On this uh, matter of elections and the FBI meddling in elections, because this is more meddling in elections, as Andy McCarthy said, with the prospect of even more to come. Tina Joliet. Hey, guys. So I have a a kind. I'm very familiar with Ricky Vaughn, which was his Twitter name. And um, we another lie. We were in quasi-similar circles, and um, I co-hosted a very large Twitter account at that time. And it was all, we were all, you know, following the elections, blah, blah, blah. But what they're failing to, to, to admit is that, number one, his account, he used a picture of Charlie Sheen as his profile pic. Right. It was clearly a, 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 a fake account. It was clearly a parody account. It was very politically biased. Give him the heater, Ricky. Donald Trump. It, it was so it this is so I, I there's part of me that wants to laugh at this. But the other part is that this is what the nation's highest law enforcement office in the land was doing. Yeah. Trolling Twitter accounts, looking for offensive means so they could the door of Trump supporters. This is a very scary time in this country. And it, it's mind boggling to me that I, I mean, at least it's it, for the mask wearers. At least I know which side they're on. It's hard right. to tell who the the, uh, the the snake FBI agents are running around out there, but they're out there among us and they're probably listening to this radio show right now. Thanks so. for the call, Tina. It, was, it must have been before uh, the FBI was able to corral Twitter minders to do their bidding for them. They could have shut Ricky Vaughn down in advance of the 2016 election, right? And she's right about the profile pic. It's Charlie Sheen with glasses on and some skull and bones there in between. Uh, br- yeah. On the bridge over the nose and then wearing a MAGA hat. It's if a you joke. Can't, I mean, that's If comedy. you can't trust the wild thing <laughs> to tell you that you can vote by text, then who can you trust? Greg and Schomburg. Hey, Dan and Amy. You know, there's a Supreme Court case that's, going to be ruled on very shortly that has to deal with the Section 230 of the Communication Decency Act. Um, And it has to do with uh, Musk when he declared the value of Tesla online and disruption of the market. And there's a little bit of concern about that case because um, what it would effectively do is make the social media companies responsible for any dissemination of information that proves to be detrimental to anything, essentially, and therefore uh, prohibit freedom of speech. And I was wondering if you had any comment on that, Dan. Yeah, thanks for the call, Greg. I mean, I'm um, right. The idea that it essentially gets to the larger issue of whether the social media companies should be considered publishers and have uh, the liability that a publisher has attached to them, which they don't currently. And uh, I know there are those that are supportive of that. Uh, I'm not one of them for uh, this very reason. Now, um, I'm, I'm more in the camp of, of people like uh, Robert Epstein, who's done so much work, a Harvard psychologist who's done so much work looking at Google and how Google manipulates uh, search results in terms of the need for transparency with algorithms. Uh, so you see what people are doing. But um, the idea of th- 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 what uh, that liability exposure would do, even if there is 
and there's a lot of evidence, of course, that there is editorial discretion uh, being uh, – that that these publishers are that these social media platforms are acting as publishers because they're employing editorial discretion in terms of uh, their content moderation policies. Uh, now, I, I I don't like to go down that road because I think you're going to have more interference with free thought and free expression, not less. Uh, you know, the way to deal with this is through. Uh, competitive it's through competitors is through uh, transparency is through uh, pressure for these social media companies to establish more brightly defined standards well, what, what have I said from the beginning of this discussion which has been going on for years now basically if you just started if you if you went back and, and actually abided what Twitter originally said it was going to be which is a free marketplace of idea and just said essentially we're going to use First Amendment jurisprudence the Supreme Court's First Amendment jurisprudence as our uh, paradigm for making determinations on content moderation then I think you know people, would be appreciative of that and if there's an and if there's an indication that you're actually doing that because certainly there are there is speech that you want to take down and speakers that don't have any constitutional right to your platform if they run afoul of those strictures it's the here we go again just like with the FBI but even more uh, more dangerous with the FBI because law enforcement where social media companies are not it's the arbitrary and capricious nature of it. It's sort of rigging the system against people you don't like. If there was more clear and honest uh, uh, statements about a willingness to entertain political speech with which I disagree but, it, but is within the bounds of First Amendment jurisprudence, then I think you would greatly improve the conversations online and you would also – obviate the need for more federal intervention into the operation of these social media companies. And, and frankly, again, I be very, very skeptical of the federal government, ham-handed as they are with everything, being the solution to these problems that we all know exist. Better to continue to fight in culture and win the cultural arguments that put pressure on the social media companies to be more transparent and fair-minded. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. Big stories of the day. Then talk about them right here on Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. We've been talking about uh, policing a lot this week in the wake of the Tyree Nichols killing in Memphis. Against the backdrop of police departments in urban centers around the country reducing the standards to try to attract more persons interested in becoming police officers. We know in Chicago we're down 1,000 police officers year over year. We know from our friend, uh, retiring 
or now retired, I think, Chicago Police Lieutenant uh, John Garrido. 300 officers are leaving the Chicago Police Department on an annual basis at the present rate. They're not retiring. They're going to another police department. Right. They're just retiring from Chicago law enforcement. And some suburban police departments are offering, you know, signing bonuses up to $10,000. Yeah, and you have recruitment uh, being uh, made, uh, recruitment efforts being made by states like Florida, Texas, elsewhere to, in states like New York, California, Illinois, to get these experienced police officers to go down to their communities where they will have not just perhaps a salary bump, but uh, they'll have the added benefit of being backed by their civilian political authorities and perhaps local prosecutors, too. You know, the people that they arrest who are guilty of crimes will actually be prosecuted, convicted, sentenced appropriately. Uh, one police officer who was CPD then left for a suburban police department wants to return to CPD, but he can't. Officer Jimmy K joins us now. Jimmy K, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Good morning. How are you? Good morning. So, uh, boy, a lot of questions there. Um, I guess the story, why'd you leave? And why, do you why do you want to come back? And why can't you? So the, the reason I left, uh, a lot of the other officers who've left can relate to me. It's just... I think we just got fed up with the leadership and the command staff of uh, the police department. Um, I left in uh, the middle of 2021 and uh, just figured I'd give out, give, give a try to the suburban side of uh, policing. Um, I've been in the suburban department for a year now, a little over a year. And, uh, and I just, I just don't think it's me. It's, it's for me. Uh, I think, What's special about working in Chicago is that, you know, it carries a lot of substance to it. You're working for a big city. You're working for the third largest city in the United States. Um, you know, I grew up here also, north, far northwest side. Um, you know, I, I think it just has a lot of greater significance working in the big city uh, compared to anywhere else. You know, uh, whether it's working in the neighborhood, uh, bordering where you grew up, or, you know, the historic downtown. It's just the... Uh, this carries a lot of substance to it of just working uh, in Chicago. And I can also touch on just saying, you know, I think, I think the Chicago police department probably has the greatest camaraderie along with the, uh, the patrol officers, not a big fan of the command staff, but, or the mayor, but uh, definitely, you know, when you're working the B car with your coworkers and you're going to some of these hectic uh, calls for service, um, you trust each other. Uh, you want to back each other up and, uh, I, I am confident to say that, you know, CPD has the uh, greatest camaraderie among the uh, the beat car. Well, are you uh, bored in the suburbs? And which suburb do you work for? So I'll say that I work in a, uh, a western suburb that borders uh, Cook County. Okay. Um, I wouldn't say bored. Uh, I would just, I just miss the, the style of policing with Chicago. And, you know, I miss working with uh, all my friends. Uh, back in my old district, and uh, it's just something uh, just something about how special working for the city is. All right, so uh, you can't stand those Starbucks soldiers at the, the downtown Hinsdale. <laughs> That's what I'm hearing, right? 
Yeah. Exactly. I mean, they're terrible. I mean, I, I understand it. Uh, I mean, I'm not, I have no idea where you work, so I'm not saying it, but yeah. I'm just sort of surmising. <laughs> um, so, so we're down a thousand officers year over year. You've got uh, uh, all these officers leaving Chicago to go to other departments who are not retiring. Uh, there's this uh, redoubling of efforts to get uh, people into the academy to train. Um, and yet you can't go back to CPD. You're trying to go back, and you can't get back. Why? So there's no straight answer on why I can't go back, or my friends as well. I I personally know 106 officers that have left CPD and are trying to go back. Um, That's a lot. Myself? Yeah. Oh, it's, yeah. It's, it's as many uh, officers as the as Lightfoot's uh, mayor detail. You know, so, <laughs> that is a lot. Wow. That really puts it in perspective. Yeah, right. Exactly. So myself, along with a lot of my buddies, we are not progressing in this hiring process. Um, I applied in April of last year and I have not heard back since June. A lot of a lot of my friends, too, have not heard any progress with this hiring process. Uh, and just for some perspective as well, when I originally applied, to CPD years ago, I was hired in eight months. Uh, now, today, because they're, they need the bodies, a new hire who has never been the police who applies to Chicago can get hired as quick as three months. And, uh, you know, so what, what's, what, there's, there's no issue to bring us back. Is it, I'm sorry to interrupt, but is it a collective bargaining agreement where, like, if you leave, then you lose your seniority, and so those that are on the list or in the academy get priority? Or what? I mean, because you have all these mayoral candidates talking about how the first thing I'm going to do is hire more police and so on and so forth. Then even Triple Threat is saying that uh, now, too, to some extent. But but then you got got 100 officers out there, like you're saying, uh, that are experienced and uh, could be uh, hired and deployed straight away with no learning curve. So there is a proposal that, the Chicago Police's uh, union, the FOP, they have proposed a uh, rehire program to the city. Um, speaking with the FOP, uh, they they made some good progress with uh, the city's human resources department, and they're they're for it. They want to bring us back. However, we're currently waiting for Lightfoot to sign off on this. Uh, for the FOP, this this document has been sitting at her desk for the past two months, uh, since December. Really? So, wow. So, the, you know, the the Lightfoot knows she has to bring bodies back to the street. Uh, we we know we're short staffed, and why why can't why can't a hundred officers return back to the department? Uh, you know, like I said, we're experienced. We know how to do the job. We know how we we we've done this we've done this for a few years now. And uh, just for some extra perspective, too, you know, a lot of these urban apartments are hiring uh, experienced officers. You know, when I was looking to leave Chicago, I applied to a few suburban agencies. I was getting offers within one to two months. And it's, it's a quick it's a quick process. You do the interview. They do a quick background check on you and you do a little medical checkup at the doctor's office to make sure you're all healthy and ready to work the street. So and, th- there's there's no excuse to bring us back, uh, you know. I I, it's, I think it's just likelihood, and she is not, she is just not for it. And you know, right. you, you'd assume she would she would take credit for this uh, 
leading up to election, but we all know how she is. Yeah. Well, yeah, and, yeah, I mean, by quitting, you probably upset her, so she doesn't want to do anything to help you. Well, uh, also, also, maybe she doesn't, I mean, in addition to perhaps not really wanting, sort of begrudgingly having to hire more cops at some point, she certainly doesn't want to do it now and upset the delicate balance of the Black Lives Matter folks and the lakefront leftists mm-hmm. who've been brainwashed into believing the police are the enemy and so forth. I mean, that's who she needs. If she has a big splash of hiring 106 officers, then she's going to upset some parts of her constituency, I suspect. You know, and that's that's very valid and that's probably true. And I'll add this as well. Uh, so it's, it's a common thing uh, within the uh, Chicago Police Department to offer a uh, leave of absence. Um, these leave of absences uh, allow you to leave the department and re- usually return back within a year. Um, I'm, I'm sure the policy has changed throughout the years of, you know, at CPD, but uh, anyone who applies for it gets it approved. You know, they leave, they come back. And uh, of recently, of recent years, when I, so when I was looking to leave in 2021, I tried to get, I applied for this leave of absence, as did everyone else that has left. We, have, we were all denied that leave of absence. And this is the first time ever in the history of the Chicago Police Department where these leaves were being denied. I mean, who else is, who, who else can you point the finger to? I think it was Lightfoot and she was just being, just being herself and how, denied how us long, our leave. How for, long were you on CPD before you yeah. left? I was with uh, CPD for five years. Okay. And, and these other officers that you know of, these 106 officers you speak of, these are all uh, guys and gals that have years of experience. Correct. I mean, it, it it's ranging from, uh, from two years to even some people that have, you know, 20 plus years that also want to return back. Hmm. And, and, you know, there's, and nobody was, you know, there's no like, uh, bad apples here to use the, the common parlance. There's nobody that left under clouds or disciplinary problems, or there's no, you're not trying, we're not trying to shoehorn bad cops in or anything like that. I'm not 100% sure about that, but I would have to say no, because most of these people that have resigned went to another police department. Right. These suburban agencies wouldn't have hired us if we had that bad complaint or anything, uh, yeah. any bad, any baggage that we had uh, applying, because we all have to go through a background investigation. Can your union hired. help you at all? Well, they are. They're trying the to. I know, but yeah. I mean, are they going to be effective? Because she doesn't like John Catanzara. Yes, she does not like him at all. Not at all. Maybe that's another reason and factor of why the rehire proposal is being ignored. But yeah, the union is helpful, and uh, they're the ones who, when I, when I, when we've spoken to the the union, they're the ones who came up with this rehire program after they realized so many uh, guys and gals want to come back to the department. Well, and of course, then that's, I mean, that's hardly a legitimate excuse. I don't like John Canzara, so I'm not going to hire 100 cops that could potentially improve Mm. the public safety situation in Chicago. That's not a legitimate excuse. That may be the truth or part of the truth, but that certainly is not Mm -hmm. defensible. This is not about personalities. This is about public safety. Um, So just going back to why you want to go back, though, I get the neighborhood thing. Are, Are you from family of cops? Uh, yes, my father was a yeah. retired police officer. Yeah, for Chicago. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I get that. And and, uh, and the camaraderie, um, you know, you, we see that and, you know, officers, you see. You know, so you get it. 
But um, but I mean, still, uh, are you banking on a change in leadership uh, in Chicago? Because because it seems to me what we and what we're hearing from a lot of cops and what you're seeing from a lot of cops who leave, as you were saying, is, look, I, we don't we don't like the command structure. Obviously, the politicians don't have our back. It makes it impossible for us to do our job. Uh, we we're rearresting the same people over and over again. They're turned right back out. It's dangerous for us and so forth. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, those things don't sound very attractive. You know what? And those, those things you've mentioned, I believe that affects policing, uh, not just in Chicago, but the whole state nationwide. It's a, it's a difficult job right now. And, uh, you know, I think, I think what keeps me sane and along with other people to stay within this profession is believing that the pendulum is going to swing back, um, specifically with Chicago, uh, the command, like the command staff, is an issue. Leadership is leadership problems are are uh, problematic. Um, but I I think we just have this hope. Um, I, I I'll say this: vote vote Paul Vallis. I think he's a great uh, he's a great candidate. I think he can lead the city back to uh, to some normalcy, and uh, he is willing to help and work with the police department as well. And uh, along with getting rid of Superintendent Brown and just switching up the command staff. And I think that would make a huge difference and uh, just make the department a much better place as well. And he just got endorsed by the Chicago Tribune this morning. They said that Chicago's in need of a turnaround and Paul Vallis uh, is the person to do it. And uh, uh, Chicago Tribune, that is that, well, is, a, that is an endorsement I would not want, but uh, okay, sure. Well, that just came out. I'm just Yeah, the Chicago the Tribune has not been on the side of police. The Chicago the the NPR Times the Chicago media is not on the side of police. If I was Paul Vallis, I would take that endorsement and I'd rip it up publicly and say uh, it's all well and good. You know, I, I'm happy to get the support I get get from anywhere I get it. But let's just be honest about the Chicago media and what a how they have conspired with Lightfoot and Fox to create the environment that Chicagoans are currently uh, experiencing. I'd love to see something that is. Uh, emblematic of a guy willing to really take on the institutional villains in the city uh, like the Chicago press corps. This would be a great opportunity for him to do it. I mean, it's not a commentary on, on your endorsement of Vallis, Jimmy. I'm just saying the Chicago media is, uh, is not your friend as I'm sure you've experienced. Oh, I, I absolutely, I absolutely agree. Uh, but I, I mean, at this time I'll take any help that uh, Vallis you. can get. Yep. Yeah, my vote. So, Officer Jimmy, real quick, just because you were on the force during 2020 when we had, you know, the summer of joy with the George Floyd riots. Um, yeah. And there was three separate ones, you know, one downtown, you know, on the north side, south side. Were you told to stand down or what orders were you given? I mean, the obviously the call volume was insanity. We we weren't even responding to calls. I, uh, you know, the lootings were happening left and right. Uh, at the end, at the end of the day, we were just we're not we didn't we were never told to stand down. It was more so listen to the radio if an officer is calling for help, uh-huh. get to that area, back them up, and let's 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 keep each other safe. And that's all it was. The radio was blaring left and right. Uh, officers calling ten ones, which is which is you know an emergency. It was just running around the whole city, just backing each other up. And we had we 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 couldn't respond to calls. We couldn't. Uh, you know, take action for the crime happening in front of us because we had to back each other. 
Speaking of not responding to calls, you know, there was this uh, study done by wirepoints.org about uh, 911 calls. I think it was the calendar year 2021. And it was about, what, uh, it was 60 per, 60% of calls, 911 calls, went unresponded to. Some 400,000 calls out of the total volume went unresponded to. 400,000 citizen calls. Now, some of them may have been frivolous and so on and so forth, but that's too big a number to ignore. Um, how, how do you respond to that? I mean, obviously, we need more bodies on the street. Uh you know, I, I think there's, I think CPD also has this, uh, how can I say it? It's like a, they have this, they have all these units that are useless. For example, the community safety team, you know, you, you, you go on social media, these officers are in, are handing out, I don't know, books or, you know, in the kitchen cooking something, you know, and I'm all for community policing, but I I know this. I know this unit. This unit was still around when I was with the Chicago Police Department. There, there's over, there's over, there's hundreds of police officers in that unit. If, do we need officers involved with community policing? Absolutely. But do, do we need over a hundred? What no, do they do? What, what, what do they do? They just like they just like, look on social media to see if anybody's making a threat, or what, what do they do? They they do a, they do a few things, but they're you, recently I've been seeing that they've been doing a lot of community engagement. Like I said, which is a great thing, but we don't need hundreds of officers to be doing that, especially yeah. when the, the beat cars are short staffed to, uh, citywide. Yeah, um, a good a good way a, a good way to do community engagement is respond to nine one one calls. Cor- correct. Yeah, exactly. And we also have uh, the CPD has caps, which is specifically dealing with uh, community policing. So the, there's a lot of units that are. It's just I think they're they're useless. There's uh, a lot of administrative spots inside that uh, that police officers are working, which is basically an office job for them. I, I, that's unnecessary. Hire a civilian, or uh, you know, put and put the put the police officers on the street. At, you know, the priority should be uh, getting people working the B car and making sure these districts are fully staffed to respond to the calls. Obviously, we got calls pending, and there's studies that are proving that. So why don't we address that issue? Yeah. Officer Jimmy Kay, former Chicago police officer for five years, left for Suburban Department. Now he and, as he said, another 106 uh, fellow officers are trying to return. But Mary, Lori Lightfoot is sitting on it. Maybe this will become a campaign issue. It should be. Jimmy Kay, uh, thanks so much for joining us. Good luck getting back on the force. Thank you. I really appreciate your time. You guys take care and stay safe, all right? Yep, you too. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. It's news, opinion, insight. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Shia LaBeouf, the actor. Haven't seen much of him of late, right? He had some problems, self-inflicted accusations of abuse by former girlfriends. Well, that's right. I can't keep it straight anymore. There's so many different accusations flying against different actors. In an effort to resuscitate his career, he uh, engaged with the Catholic Church. He lived in a monastery 
with Franciscan Capuchin friars in order to better understand the late Saint Padre Pio, who LaBeouf portrays in an upcoming movie. And uh, this is a conversion story. It certainly sounds like one. He talked about uh, having a gun on the table at the uh, depths of his despair. Again, largely self-inflicted. Contemplating suicide. He said, I was going to be out of here. But that engagement with the church has seemingly changed Shia LaBeouf. Listen to this recent commentary he gave on suffering. And when I look at Christ on the cross, I think, mm, is that a joyful man? As he bleeds out and dies on a cross for humanity, is that man joyful? And I think the answer is yes, that even in his suffering, that's what Christ represents for me, meaningful suffering. You, you know, the story of Christ is that God became man for our betterment. So that means that he is an, the ultimate example, the supreme priest, the ultimate redeemer. If I look at Christ on the cross, I think that's very instructive. You don't see a lot of smiley face Christs on the cross. You don't see cross on the cross, cross dying and laughing with a plum in joy, in ultimate joy. But I think you should, they should make some Christs on the cross in ultimate serenity, in ultimate joy. They always make Christ like this sad face. And that seems stupid. It seems like, it seems like it's not deep enough. Like the artists who manufacture those crucifixes, they're, it's almost like they, they're not seeing the full story. And the full story, I believe, is that Christ is in maximum joy in that yeah. moment. He is fully in his purpose. And that's, if you can tap into how you can use your suffering to help other people, that is maximum, maximum joy. I always thought joy was, oh, I get this and then I'm happy, or I do this and then I'm happy, or I get her and then I'm happy, or I make that and then I'm happy, or they respect me and then I'm happy. Or I always thought happiness was to be acquired by the things I would gain from life. That's why I was always grabbing. If I knew early on that happiness actually is in me offering all of my suffering up for other people as, some, as an instructive thing or as something that could benefit man, then I maybe would have lived my life differently. Uh, you know, setting aside the, you know, making crucifixes and changing the countenance of Christ's face and so forth, um, that's pretty thoughtful. And you're talking about, you know, somebody who is of Hollywood, of all places. Uh, if uh, Shia LaBeouf can be reached, then there's always hope. As uh, uh, Pastor Bodie Beckham is wont to say, uh, you know, God throws you just when you think it's lost. God throws you a life preserver. Dead men don't grab. Dead men don't grab a life preserver. And uh, maybe, hopefully, that's an indication that uh, Shia LaBeouf has grabbed the life preserver. For more on this and other topics, including school choice, please be joined again by our friend Rusty Reno, who's the editor at First Things, firstthings.com. Rusty, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Oh, great to be on the show. What do you think of uh, what uh, Shia LaBeouf had to say? Beautiful sentiments. Just I think so, too. Sort of gets right to the heart of our faith. That, that The phrase that he used, which really, 
uh, to me was the you know setting aside some of the other stuff is is somebody who has seen now meaningful suffering and i, I you, you have a great uh, knowledge in this area i mean just unpack meaningful suffering from your perspective well i think he said it uh quite um quite well i mean the old line from your grandma you know offer up your suffering you know for others <clears throat> i mean he's basically saying the same thing that in our suffering we can we can pray for others uh, we can serve others we can dedicate our suffering to to um to god to to help others and really charity is the great balm for grief and suffering uh all right just uh i just it's just and you know, by the way he credits mel gibson for uh, helping lead him to the church but um it's just a story that won't get talked about in very many circles, so I didn't want to let it go without uh, commentary. Um, in um, switching gears to uh, school choice, we just uh, celebrated School Choice Week, National School Choice Week. We should be celebrating it every day. We should uh, be living it. Yeah, and we should be living it, and a lot of states are. And uh, you write, Rusty, recently that school choice promotes national unity that will come as uh, heresy to the teachers' unions, but um, explain yourself, because you know, certainly there's divided opinion on the issue. <laughs> well, in the old days, people thought of the common school experience as a great unifying force, and you know, perhaps in my childhood it did serve that function, but as the country has become more divided on, and not just divided on you know, tax policy, but on really fundamental questions about what it means to be human, really the transgender debate is, uh, touches on the most fundamental questions about what it means to be human. And I think that in that environment, we're just going to wind up being each other's throats at every school board meeting. And so um, the first step towards peace is, um, is to uh, stop fighting. <laughs> and so we need to disengage and have a, um, have a, a system where like-minded folks can, can you know, organize and, and uh, provide education, the kind of education they want for their kids. And then, um, you know, not so we're not tearing each other apart over this issue. Well, why it's is like school... federalism? Yeah. yeah, federalism at a local level. Federalism is the idea that, you know, why should, uh, you know, Washington, D.C. decide where how everybody lives in all 50 states? And similarly, why should, you know, uh, the school district decide how, you know, the, the bureaucrats in the school district decide how every child is educated? Well, why do you think school choice is itself a divisive is- issue? You know, uh, Jesus says where your treasure is, there is your heart also. Um, I think an even deeper truth is where your children are, there is your heart also. Um, you know, we we care really, really deeply about the future of our children. It's, for most of us, it's, it's, uh, it's the most passionate, most fervent, worldly commitment we have. Um, you know, our faith is, is greater, but in natural, worldly terms, that's often the most powerful emotion that... Um, parents feel. <clears throat> so it's natural that we would have uh, very intense uh, battles over education. And again, my, my thesis is disengagement, you know, so this, is this, the first step. This is sort of a, a Benedict option argument. But it goes both ways. I mean, the progressive parent, uh, you know, well, more power to you. Um, you can, you can, uh, you know, organize the schools around these progressive dogmas, but 
uh, other folks in our society should be able to educate their children in, in, in their own convictions and beliefs. I mean, I, I'm obviously I agree with that statement, but there's a, a pragmatic problem, and the pragmatic problem is that 90% of K through 12 students are in government schools that essentially um, are practitioners of that progressivism you're describing, and a lot of them can't leave. Well, that's the beauty of the the legislation in Arizona yeah. <clears throat> now in Iowa. I think it'll probably come to pass in Texas and Florida. These are huge states, a lot of people. Uh, this empowers parents to be able to actually make a meaningful choice. Um, $7,000 or and up per child. Um, it's going to take a couple of years for it to phase in for everyone. Initially, it's means tested so that the least advantaged families are the first ones to get the choice, which is, I think, the way it should be. Um, so... You know, this is also an incentive for uh, it creates resources for <clears throat> local organizations, local individuals and families to come together to establish new schools. I think that's also good for our country. Local initiative is the it's the it's the incubator of democracy, local initiative. It's the place where we are learn how to be citizens and to work in with our neighbors to try to do something together. So I think that's another sense in which it can promote unity. Right. And, and, you know, the, and left, you, the left will yeah. say it's divisive, 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 but that's because they want to be able to control the whole system. Right. And, and, um, and, you know, and this speaks to the, uh, the argument you routinely get from the teachers. You know, we've been hearing it in Chicago for as long as I've been on the planet, which is basically the argument is where we can't do anything until we can improve the situation for everyone. And, uh, the reality is that we're not here to preserve a system. We're here to educate children, and you're, as a parent, are you're here to educate your child, make sure that child gets an education. And so we need to think a bit about this not as a system, but as a, a lifeboat. And we need to get as many kids on the, those lifeboats as, as we can, as quickly as we can, and just keep at it. School choice brings the parents into the process. It engages the parent. Uh, because it, you're not sending your children by default. You actually have to be engaged. And, you know, many parents are dysfunctional and they won't be engaged, and and, uh, and that's a bad thing. But if we could increase the number of parents who are engaged just by a small, even a small percent, uh, that's, a, that's a gain. That, those are, that means that these, those kids who are going to the schools that their parents actually choose are much more likely to succeed in schooling because parental involvement and student success are very closely correlated. And it's also and, something you know, the, yeah, go ahead. I'm yeah. Sorry. And, uh, you know, the teachers unions, well, what about the people left behind? And, and, and again, I'm all, I'm, I'm all for resources to try to help those who are coming from very difficult situations, but the current system drags everybody down. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, people like me who, who have the resources can opt out with my kids, um, uh, you know, and send them to, uh, you know, religious schools or, or private education. But it's it's the parent who doesn't have the resources, the means, you know, doesn't have that spare $10,000 a year or $7,000 a year. This is where this kind of legislation really empowers uh, parents. And I think I, I just don't see any argument against that aside from protecting the system. Right. 
And this is something because of what has been afoot for the better part of the last 30 years and is is now um, increasing in pace, I would argue. This is something that uh, we should have the bullhorns on full blast on because this this is an idea that's taking hold. I mean, g- good grief. It's even taken hold in Illinois. We have uh, the Opportunity Scholarship program, Tax Credit Program. People should donate to Empower Illinois to help uh, if you – You've got your kids squared away, then help some other kid. And there's a process to do that, even in a lost state like Illinois. So, um, you know, the time is now, so to speak. And I do think that it's often easy for us to be very down because it feels like, you know, the progressive cultural jihad just is just ongoing and it steamrolls everything. But we need to say, well, wait a minute. This is something, as you pointed out, we have been um, arguing for for 30 years and it is coming to pass. We live in a very paradoxical time. Things are bad on many fronts, but on other fronts, we we're seeing an, uh, the implementation of things that we had hoped for for a long, long time. And I think school choice is one of them. I do think that it's just similar to um, similar to the overturning of Roe. Uh, yeah. Yes, places like Minnesota just passed this really extreme anti-life bill on abortion. Um, so that's that's obviously very bad. But there are other states that are, are protecting life now in a way that was un, not possible before. The same thing is going to happen with school choice. Certain states are going to really go in for this. But, it's a, but that's good. That means, you know, there, there might be um, millions and millions of kids who benefit from this movement in the coming decade, even if it doesn't come to pass in California or New York or Illinois. He is Rusty Reno. He's the editor at First Things, firstthings.com. Rusty, thanks as always. Appreciate it. Great. Great to be on the show. Have a good day. Thanks, you too. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. Listen to podcast of Dan and Amy from the AM560 mobile app. Download it today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. I misread it, so I misstated it before the break. Not 507,000 jobs. 517,000 jobs added in January, according to the Department of Labor numbers out this morning. Wow, wow, wow. Celebration time. Well, is it? I mean, it is people getting jobs, but what does that mean for Fed policy? What does that mean for the board of mystics when the March meeting comes are going to have to do more than 25 basis points. I thought we needed high unemployment to reduce yep. inflation, higher unemployment to reduce inflation. I thought we were going back to the days where the Phillips curve was operative, even though it turned out to be fraudulent. The seven fat years of Ronald Reagan gave lie to it. We can have low inflation and high employment, which is what we want. So what does that number mean in terms of what Jay Powell is likely to do? Is the soft landing happening, even though it may be happening in a different form than anticipated by those Fed mystics? For more on this, pleased to be joined by our friend Jim Perry, Perry Capital. James, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Good morning. So 517,000 jobs in January. Yeah, it's a big number. Um 
we've had a lot of big information flow this week. We had the Fed, you know, and then we've got these earnings coming out, and now we've got this. So there's a lot of information hitting the market pretty quickly, and it really doesn't quite know what to do. But uh, the matter at hand is just 517,000 jobs, and uh, that's a much higher number than expected. And I would say the real takeaway for your listeners and everybody that's thinking about this is that it's going to make the Fed job tougher. They're going to have to go higher for longer with inflation. Do you, it will see that's that was my question, but but do they have to? Do they want to? Will they do it? Uh, those are sort of different questions. Uh, are they right. they're still going to operate under the belief that three point four percent that's too low? We gotta we gotta bump that number up. We gotta jack rates beyond another quarter point. Is that that what they're going to do? Because because the market rally is predicated on uh, another quarter point in March, and and then we go back to the salad days of quantitative easing right yeah i mean it, it does make their job trickier i i was probably in the small minority of forecasters and strategists that were thinking that the fed should go 50 um and the reason i say that and i of course i had a feeling that the market was already pricing in 25 so it was not a surprise but i think they should have gone more um the problem is that uh financial conditions are still extremely easy. Uh, you and I have been talking about that for two or three months here, really since sort of October. The, the Chinese are easing, uh, the Japanese are easing, and you know the Fed really, you think about this big balance sheet they have, it's only come down from nine trillion to eight and a half trillion. So we're still four trillion up, and there's a ton of money in the financial system. So. I think the economy and the markets are doing exactly what they should be doing in a, in a low interest rate and inflationary environment. They're they're doing okay. Well, how how high do you think the interest rates are going to go? Like when when will it reach the peak? What number? Well, if we take Powell at his word, he's worried about these sort of core services numbers in the PC number, right? So. The Fed's target for inflation using the PCE, that's a consumer price, uh, a personal consumption expenditures number, they want to get to 2% because they think that that's where we should be to help the whole country manage their lives. Uh, we're at 5% right now. So um, I, I think to get inflation down to target is going to take a recession. Now, whether the Fed's got the fortitude to do that or not, is another story, but um, especially since Leo Brainerd said that financial conditions have tightened significantly, and Powell even said that yesterday, and that's really and that is just not true. Well, so so uh, what do you say to someone who says, "Well, wait a second, um, if uh, the economy is doing you know pretty well because of this uh, low inflation, I mean, excuse me, low uh, interest rate, uh, high employment uh, status." then why don't we just, you know, walk it along? We don't have to run. Let's continue to uh, enjoy the rally that started in January. The, now we have uh, people going back to work. Uh, we have, you know, there, there was a story out this week, uh, despite um, uh, big headlines about big layoffs, uh, the number of unfilled jobs was at an all-time high. So why right. don't we just continue to shuffle along like this? Well, I think that um, 
biggest issue is inflation. And I think that um, if you look at the underlying inflation for the average household, people are spending 5 to 10% more on living expenses than they're earning right now. Um, that's a major imbalance, right? And if you think about demand, and to Amy's point, you know, I think the Fed funds rate's probably got to go to at least five and a quarter and probably higher. But, you know, demand in the country is really running pretty high the last quarter or so. I mean, GDP in the fourth quarter was 2.9%. That's up or down a little bit from 3.2 in the third quarter. Retail sales are strong. And, you know, you try to get a restaurant reservation in any downtown city in any city in the country, and it's impossible. So people who have money are going out and they're spending it. And it's kind of that 80-20 rule where, you know, roughly 20% of the highest income households tend to spend um, or account for about 80% of discretionary income. So that's, yeah, but that's but that's all that's that's all we care about. We just care about we have care about people who have brokerage accounts and homes that they'd like to they'd like to see their four hundred one k's recover. They'd like to see their trading accounts bounce back like it did in January. They'd uh, like to see their home values stable. Let's just say stable, if not to increase a bit. Maybe not like did during the pandemic, but increase nonetheless. That if if that happens for that twenty percent, that's what we actually care about, isn't it? Well, the financial sector and the people that own the financial sector, you know, that whole rally that we've seen in the last 14 years has been built on generous and, and cheap money. Um, but the credibility of the Fed is really on the line here. And the fact is that, you know, inflation does hurt the majority of the people in this country. And it's hurting a lot of people in the lower income levels and middle income levels. Substantially. I know, but so, I just want, I want Elon Musk to get his $200 billion back. That's what that's what I'm mainly concerned about. I'm, I'm, I'm you know, we're, we're we're just. I mean, I'm sort of being tongue in cheek, but but it's sort of, it's tr it's true. We really only focus on and care about the impact it has on the the ownership strata in society. I mean, that's Correct. just the truth, isn't it? Correct. Well, for the people that own it, yeah. <laughs> right. I'm not. I, I'm not sure the government cares thinks that way. You know, I think. Um, I'm, I'm glad the economy's growing, and uh, I'm, I'm not happy that it's still inflating. And I think that the Fed's credibility probably needs a little something uh, of a boost here because um, there's a lot of people that are really struggling still. Do you think? Do you think? Do you think? Sorry, do you think Powell still thinks that inflation could tick back up and and uh, ruin the Garden Party? I do. And so that's what he's guarding against. If you see a number come up, if you see an inflation number come up in February or March, say, then there's going to be panic. I think the Fed is, or at least Powell is correct in realizing that the battle against inflation is not completed. And I think that he is going to err on the side of tightening because he's got some credibility building to do. Uh, where are we with the supply chain issue? We haven't talked about it in a while. It's, it seemed to be sort of remedying itself, although as somebody who's doing a gut rehab on his house, on his house thanks to uh, Hurricane Ian, right. um, the lead times for uh, you know home supplies and the supplies to do things like build homes 
uh, a lot of a lot of those items and those materials um, don't seem to be as um, readily available as they were pre-pandemic. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, there's still some major imbalances out there. The people that were talking about transitory inflation 18 months ago, and even the Fed, even as recently as sort of a year ago, uh, they were right in the sense that, you know, the supply chain snarls have been reduced. However, everything that is processed for consumption in this country, whether it be building materials and food, uh, those prices are not going down, right? I mean, the core commodity prices are going down, but inflation is really about wages right now and every step of the process of getting you know a carton of eggs to the to the grocery store or cheese or beef or lumber or cement that stuff everybody that delivers that stuff at every step of the of the process is getting paid a lot more so those prices are not coming down yet i mean eggs are six bucks if you can even find them and we have a carrot shortage for some reason but president biden keeps saying wages are up since I've become president, and they're not. Our wages are not reflecting the inflation rate. That's exactly right, Amy, and that's what is the big problem here. You know, people's wages are not keeping up with uh, the prices they have to pay, and um, it's a problem. I mean, Mm -hmm. I was looking, being from Florida, you know, I watch orange juice futures. They're at the all-time highs right now, right? So anybody that buys orange juice for the kid for breakfast and has an egg and and has toast and butter, you know, that's a problem. It's a problem. Orange juice up here is four dollars. Yeah. <laughs> it used to be two nineteen. I mean, that's right. A so this is really the issue. Wages are not keeping up with inflation, and um, this is a good start with this uh, payroll number today. I think that's great. But you know, unemployment rates at three point four percent. So that means that wages are going to keep getting pushed higher because people are still looking for um, workers, Employees. right? Um, so what's I mean, assuming that Powell stays the course that has been charted effectively by the market, uh, as he did in February, assume he does that again in March. And then there's a reassessment and maybe he holds serve at that point. What's your outlook for 2023 in the market? Are we going to see a, a bounce back uh, uh, people recovering at least some of what they lost in 2022? Yeah, I think I think what's going to happen here, and again, it, it, this is very tricky. It's been as complicated as I've ever seen it, and, and most people. But um, I've said from the very beginning of this tightening cycle that the Fed will continue to hike until the market tells him not to, right? Now, what that means, very simply, is that if the stock market is having – it's had a 20% rally, really. I mean, you know, you look at some of these numbers, the returns this year – the S&P's up nine, NASDAQ's up 16. That's this year, right? Yeah. Um, Bitcoin's up 56%. Kathy Wood's ARK Innovation Fund's up 54, you know? I mean, and yesterday, these FANG stocks are up 7% alone. So the stock market is loving this, this cheap money narrative, which probably isn't going to come because profit margins are really getting smacked. I don't know if you saw the earnings reports last night from the big – the big three, um, the AAA tech firms, Apple, Amazon, and Alphabet. Um, you know, net income growth at Microsoft is down 12%. Um, at Facebook, Meta, it was down 52%, right? Google's net income was down 34%. And the S&P so far right now, earnings are down 20%. But that's just in this earnings cycle. So 
profit margins are getting squeezed, and at some point, a higher rate structure is going to continue to impact profit margins, and that means the valuation levels on, on the S&P and all the other broad indices that we see are probably going to come down. Well, so then, then I mean, that's sort of, we were talking about this a bit with, uh, I think it was Jonathan Honig uh, earlier in the week. So, right, you, so you see th- those um, troubling earnings reports, but yet the market's response is that that, uh, that rally that you were just detailing. So what does that mean, that earnings reports don't matter at this point, only Fed policy does? Well, if you look at the last three days, right, um, yesterday the S&P was up 60 points. The day before that it was up 42. The day before that it was up 58, right? Um, in the futures market today, the earnings um, – the uh, or the S and P 500 looks to set is set to be opening down 55 points. So you're going to give some of that back. The market has been cheering on the idea that cheap money is going to be here and going to stay here and going to get here quicker than they think. If you talk to any tech guy, they say interest rates are still cheap. They're not going to go higher. This is the end of the road. They're treating this like the Fed is easing right now, and that's it's got to come into a little bit more of a balance, I think. He is Jim Perry, Perry Capital. James, thanks as always. Appreciate your insights. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. The more you listen, the more you listen, the more you'll know. This is Chicago's morning answer. Morning answer on AM 560. The answer. Open mic. Open mic Friday. Call it now. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. It's Open Mic Friday, 312-642-5600, turnkey.proanswerline. Try to get through as many calls as we can with your comments, compliments, concerns, criticisms, general crack pottery. We'll take it all. Amy, anything you would like to begin with? Yeah, I just want to talk about Hunter Biden because I ran into this soundbite from him yesterday. Remember how he denied that the laptop wasn't his? Now they're filing a lawsuit. Now they're saying it's his, but then they changed and said the content is from his laptop, but but that might not be his laptop. Does that make sense? The content the is content? from his yep. laptop, but it's not his laptop. Yes, that's what his uh, attorneys came out with yesterday. Uh-huh. So here's this is from April fourth, twenty twenty one. He was on CBS Sunday Morning. So you don't know yes or no if the laptop. I don't have was any yours. idea. I have no idea. So it could have been yours. Of course, certainly it, 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 there could be a laptop out there that was stolen from me. There could be that I was hacked. It could be that that was the that it was Russian intelligence. It could be that it was stolen from me. Uh, I mean, get your story straight. And apparently Biden's team did not agree with this legal strategy and possible defamation of character lawsuit against Tucker Carlson and Fox News. Uh, well, I'm excited, I'm uh, getting more and more excited about the uh, developments in artificial intelligence, okay. AI, uh, chat, GBT, and whatnot. We've talked about a few times over the last couple of weeks, and I'll give you a reason why. Well, Listen to this interview uh, with uh, a tech geek uh, by a CNN reporter. Which jobs is AI coming after first? If you're a middle manager, you're doomed. Any kind of commodity salesperson, report writers and journalists... Report writers and journalists are going to be gone? Uh-oh. You mean well, me? I'm for that. I'm for that. And also, um, uh, well, journalists especially, but report writers, middle managers, 
that means uh, guys like these are going to be out of a job. Hello, Peter. What's happening? Uh, we have sort of a problem here. Yeah, you apparently didn't put one of the new cover sheets on your TPS reports. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry about that. I, I forgot. Mm, yeah. You see, we're putting the cover sheets on all TPS reports now before they go out. Did you see the memo about this? Yeah. Great. Yeah, yeah, I have the memo right here. I just uh, forgot. But What's happening? We need to talk about your TPS reports. <laughs> yeah, the cover sheet, I know. I know. Uh, Bill talked to me about it. Yeah. Did you get that memo? Yeah, I got the memo. And I understand the policy, and the problem is just that I forgot the one time, and I've already taken care of it, so it's not even really a problem anymore. Mm. Ah, yeah. <laughs> It's just we're putting new cover sheets on all the TPS reports before they go out now. So if you could go ahead and try to remember to do that from now on, that'd be great. All right. Peter Gibbons? Yes. I have the memo. Okay. <laughs> hey, and speaking of problems, what's this I hear about you having problems with your TPS report? <laughs> yeah. Didn't you get that memo? Uh, yeah, so uh, uh, Bill uh, Lumberg and uh-huh. and Michael Bolton will be out of a job. I mean, that'll be great. It'll be replaced by artificial intelligence. Think how much more efficient Inatech will be Yeah. in producing whatever Inatech produced. Get that TPI report out, yeah. TPS. TP, that's what I meant, too. Yeah, yeah. No more TPS reports. AI is going to take care of that. All right, let's go to the phone lines. Uh, Rosemarie in Lamont, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Uh, yes, I'd like to know if you could say something about all the whales that are being killed on the East Coast. A Swedish company is going to build 100 windmills in the ocean, and when they're using the science equipment, they're killing the whales. There were pictures on television about 10 big whales being killed, kind of all that equipment being used in the ocean. Could you find out anything about that for me, please? Thanks for the call, Rosemary. Yeah. We'll get the Damn Sierra Club book. right on it. I'm uh, no, I mean they have a homework uh, assignment this week. Well, it's good news. Uh, it means the price of heating oil will go down. As far as I'm concerned, you know what I mean. Oh, we just had breaking news. The name the snowplow contest winners have been announced. Yeah, Mrs. O'Leary's plow, De Snow, I mean De Plow, Salter Payton, Sears Plower, Sleet Home Chicago, Holy Plow, and Jean Baptiste Point de Shovel. Lame. Uh, so uh, Black Ice didn't, Matters didn't didn't make it. Black Ice Matters didn't make it. Neither did the one I put in. Snowflake. To represent, uh, we live with a bunch of snowflakes. Okay, a perfect segue to John in Bridgeport. Hey Dan. Hey Amy. Uh, real quick, uh, Marianne Ahern from NBC just retweeted recently that Lori Lightfoot is not leading in any ward in Chicago still. Do you feel that she might be in danger or she recognizes she might be in danger? Second of all, Chewy Garcia is coming out with a commercial saying that Paul Vallis is a Republican. Do you see that gain, gaining any traction? Uh, thanks. thanks for the call, John. Mary Ahern's never been the same since she lost the, her uh, Bouvier sister uh, com- comrade there, Carol Marine. Um, but she's not winning in any ward. That's big news. Not really. Um yeah, well, I Tony Preckwinkle didn't win in any ward, not even her own ward. Well, that's a little bit different. It yeah, was in a field a of nine. Um, but, um, you know, I, the, it's the campaign uh, has been so vanilla uh, with everybody doing what they do, nobody taking any risks. It's been uninteresting. Chewy Garcia has run 
the weakest campaign of the, you know, supposed uh, uh, front runners that could make the runoff. So we'll see. I don't pretend to know the mind of the uh, leftist goofball in Chicago, but I do. I can't observe their behavior. I don't know. Um, the Paul Vallis Republican thing was inevitable. And um, yeah, I'm he surprised filled in it, on the show. I'm surprised it's taken as long to get there as, as it as it has with these other candidates to go after him with that. Uh, you know, what was Darren Bailey's favorite Democrat or something like that? Like like, uh, you know, is customary here. Um, you know, I don't know if I had to call it right now in 25 days is a long time. This is just get, you know, people are going to tune in late. It's going to be low turnout. So it's there's a lot of variables here. But I, I'd probably say Vallis and Lightfoot if the election were today would be the runoff. Okay. But but we'll see. We'll see. I mean, this is why I said earlier when uh, uh, Amy uh, broke in with the breaking news that Paul Vallis had won the Tribune endorsement. Such an opportunity for Paul Vallis to say, thanks, but uh, whatever. It's not something that I care about. Uh, the Chicago Tribune, the Chicago media have been part and parcel of the destruction of the city. They've been the comm shop for the uh, powers that be mm-hmm. who are responsible for bringing the city to its knees, responsible for the mass exodus, responsible for the lack of safety, responsible for... Uh, accomplices in the financial destruction of the city, whether you can recognize it or not, whether you can read a balance sheet or not. So, you know, just do something that's against type to demonstrate that you are who you say you are and will do what you say you do. And I'm not just talking about that for Vallis. I'm talking about that for all the candidates. It's been very vanilla, very conventional, very boring. So we'll see. We'll see. I Will the Chewy... Endorsement or the Chewy hits on Paul Vallis, will they have an impact? Eh. Okay. I think it's I think it's marginal. I mean, I, right now all of these candidates have a low ceiling. So what are they going to do? Drive off uh, people who've decided Paul Vallis, even if they have qualms about him, is the most competent uh, choice. You know, what's his constituency look like? And isn't this Going, race going to largely break along racial lines with the black vote split up a bunch of different ways because right. of the number of black candidates. Probably, barring something interesting offered by any of the candidates. Nah. Uh, Dave and Racine. Greetings. Um, I'm thinking this uh, balloon sent by China might be just kind of a Rorschach test to see how our military, you know, handles this, you know, kind of a test by the Chinese, you know, nothing. Uh, I'm be more worried if they had an Acme anvil attached to the thing than, you know, any kind of uh, cameras or, you know, signal gathering equipment. Right. Well, let's just leave it to Governor, Montana Governor John Dutton. He'll get that thing out of the air. <laughs> uh, but no, I mean, of course, we just accept the uh, TRICOM explanation on right. its face that it's just a weather balloon that blew off course. <laughs> right. Mm. Okay. Put Hunter Biden on it. Maybe he can make a couple oh, of calls. Yeah. He's, He's got a friends. Brilliant mind. And an artist, too. Uh, Bob in Edison Park, speaking of China. Speaking of China, yeah, Dan, maybe you could clear something up for me. Um, we got this general coming out recently saying that 
war with China is all but inevitable. You've got these uh, spy. Every day there's another Chinese spy at a university. You've got uh, Falwell sleeping with spies and so on and so on and so on. Here's here's my question. Why? Why are we? Why is China? Are we still buying so much of China? Why does China control so much of our supply chain? And not only that, okay, we could say, well, now it's too late to retool. But how did this happen? Who sold us out ultimately to Chinese? I am no political genius by a long shot. All right. But I was calling this out, Dan, even on your show back in WLS. I was calling it out back then. Why are we so dealing with the Chinese? You know what? You know what a lot of Republicans would tell me when I would confront them? That, oh, don't worry about Chinese cheap stuff. It's a pay raise for the American worker. Well, how is that working out for you? Why don't we have Why don't we have Russia build our stuff? Why don't we have Iran build our stuff? These are questions. And why did the Republicans, the, the these pro, they they can't get us in a war fast enough. Why did they side with an enemy that's powerful as China? Do they worry about Iran? China, China, Iran is nothing. China is a real threat. How did it get this bad? Thanks. Thanks for the call, Bob. Uh, Ryan in New Lenox. Hey, Dan and Amy. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, going back to the discussion on Tyree Nichols, I, first of all, thanks for your coverage of this. I really appreciate how you guys you know, call balls and strikes and not try to inject any kind of narrative on these discussions that are so fraught for uh, narrative on, on all sides, really. The the left blaming institutional racism, I think, has a lot to do with secularism. They have to blame the instrumentality of evil or they have to blame these big institutions because they have no answer for the fact that evil lives within man's heart. Uh, we, are, we are a sinful people and we have been redeemed. You know, we know that theologically, but the left has no answer for that. So they have to just blame these big behemoths of institutional racism gun violence or everything, because it allows them to feel better about the fact that they don't have to justify the fact that there's actually evil in this world and evil within man's heart. Thanks for the call, Ryan. That, and they also don't have to justify the consequences of the policies they've advanced. Yep. Rich, Indian Head Park. Yes, good morning, Dan. Good morning, Amy. Um, what I have to say this morning is uh, I've heard uh, – in 2022, 286 kids under the age of uh, 17 were shot and 43 of them were killed. Uh, do you know of any politicians locally, statewide, or federalized that had attended any of their funerals or at least called the, called the families on the phone uh, to uh, uh, tell them uh, they're sorry for their loss? Because I can't think of any. Maybe you no, know of, of one or well, thanks for the call. I mean, I, I don't really care about politicians attending funerals to make it about themselves and to, to have a sort of make a spectacle of themselves. That's what Kamala Harris did at uh, Nichols' funeral. Right. That's a good it's example. So embarrassing. Uh, um, I, I'd rather have them apologize for allowing the city to be turned over to the thugs. Rahm Emanuel used to go to their house if a kid was killed under 18, that he would visit them at home. Same thing. Don't care. You know. Yeah, and how, and how do we and how do we know that because it was a photo op? Because yeah, he told us. Christine Mount Greenwood. 
Hi, good morning, everyone. I just wanted to uh, remind people, February 8th, we're having a uh, a meeting at Bourbon Street, not rather a meeting, but kind of a forum to talk about what's happening in our schools. We're all aware of it, but this is going to be a different approach um, where we have different suggestions. We have an awesome panel. It's five bucks to get in. Uh, we have been told that the opposition is coming, so we do need all the support we can get because this is a great panel. Stephanie Trussell, myself, Robert Rentera, um, P. Ray, um, different people from different ethnic organizations. Just come join us. Come support. Our kids are our future. Open bar? No open bar. Oh. No. <laughs> and you expect people to attend? I win the lottery. I will have an open bar. Oh, well, All thank right. you. Thanks for the call, Yeah, thanks for letting us know. Because, again, they tried to have that same event in Des Plaines, and all the people on the left freaked out, and they had an emergency city council meeting and shut it down. It's Kevin, ridiculous. Austin, Texas. Uh, good morning, Brianna and Amy. I'm curious uh, what your opinion is or view on the state of play of the Illinois Republican Party with Don Tracy putting up these goofy uh, committees on how they can be more effective and how people who are fellow travelers of yours can make any type of change. Uh, I, you know, I, thanks for the call, Kevin. Honestly, I mean, looking for the state party, that, that which has got a a couple of staffers and no money to resuscitate the Republican Party is looking in the wrong place. This, you know, I see some of these uh, personality squabbles. They're so boring and they're so without point. What, what people should be concerned about is what the House and Senate super minority Republican caucuses are doing or not doing. You know, the ones that are headed by uh, two leaders who supported the Public Sector Union Amendment 1 uh, referendum in November that guarantees the financial destruction of Illinois. Mm -hmm. So, you know, to, to tell me what people that were elected to do. I know, you know Tracy's technically elected by the party itself, but tell me what people in positions of legislative authority are doing to imbue the Republican Party with meaning. The state party chairman, whether it's Don Tracy or somebody else, cannot force legislative leaders to adopt positions or demonstrate courage. T -t Tell me about people who've been elected to do something, who are leaders of the caucuses. What are they doing? Do you even know their names? How many people, rank-and-file Republicans, know their names? Know the names of... Any of the Republican leaders of the past 20 years in the House and the Senate. Post, you know, Daniels and Philip. Always looking in the wrong places so we can have these 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 fights are like uh, fights in the academy. They're fights over nothing. They're fights over titles. Waste of time. Looking at the wrong place. Chuck and Delavan. Hey, how you doing? Am I Munchkin Voice? Am I Munchkin Voice? You're not Munchkin Voice. No, boys. you're not. Okay, first time caller, long time listen. Really quick, public service <laughs> announcement. When you guys are using the porta potties up here in Lake Geneva, make sure you put the toilet paper down when you come to the big festival, otherwise your butt will stick to the toilet seat. Don't forget they got the big weekend. They got all the ice sculptures are out, and they're going to have a judging tomorrow on the snow sculptures at 12 noon. So come on up, come on up and enjoy. 
Thank you for that, particularly for that safety tip, Chuck. We don't want a Christmas story on your ass sort of incident uh, up there in Wisconsin. Chuck from Delavan closes out. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning News. There's only one radio show in Chicago talking about today's biggest stories and telling you what they really mean. That show is this one. Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender.